0: Well, in 2015, Chapman University did a survey about the main things that Americans fear uh, and are worried about, and they kind of summed them up into five different categories. And uh, as you can see from the chart, the biggest fear was focused on the government, specifically uh, on the corruption of government officials, and I think that uh, will continue to grow as uh, the election gets closer. But uh, the second biggest fear was focused on the misuse of technology, uh, cyber, terrorism, corporations and governments that were uh, spying on us and tracking our personal information. The third biggest fear was focused on man-made disasters, terrorist attacks, biowarfare, warfare uh, collapsing of the economy. The fourth biggest fear was focused on crime, Uh, and oddly enough, the two biggest ones were identity theft and credit card fraud. I would have thought murder and others would top the list, but they didn't. Uh, And the fifth fear was our personal future, and the biggest thing was running out of money. So those are some of the top things that people are fearful of, and and us as Christians, we could add a whole new category, uh, and that category being persecution for the church, Uh, because within the country that we live in, that is definitely growing the uh, anti-view of Christianity and the Bible and this uh, added persecution that comes with it and and there's also this you know sadness that we see within the body of Christ is the response that many churches are having is basically to abandon biblical truth because the culture doesn't like it and the culture doesn't want it and so you know as Christians we have our own things that you know oftentimes we're fearful about but you know the reality is all of us deal with situations we deal with circumstances that we fear and that we worry and the question I want us to ponder this morning is is what is the biblical, godly response to fear, to worry? How should we respond, and what can we do to help us overcome the fears and the worries that we have in our life? Here in Acts chapter 18, we're going to see something that perhaps you didn't really think about much. The Apostle Paul, the great Apostle who seems to do everything right, we're going to see here in Acts chapter 18, he was fearful. And he was worrying. And God's going to come to Paul in this moment of fear, in this moment of worry, and he's going to bring three encouragements to Paul to help Paul overcome these fears, to help Paul get past these worries. And I want us to note these three encouragements because for us today, I'm sure that all of us deal with fear, all of us deal with worry, and these three challenges that God is going to give to Paul are great encouragements to us as we seek to overcome these fears and these worries that so many things in life life bring our way and we respond to them in that way and so let's see what we can learn here from Acts chapter 18 starting in verse 1 says this after these things Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth and he found a certain Jew named Aquila born in Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome and he came to them So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. So at the end of chapter 17, you remember that Paul was ministering in Athens, and the response there in Athens was not good. As I mentioned last week, that was the worst response to the gospel so far in the missionary journeys. And so Paul leaves Athens, and he travels over to Corinth. And I want to note a couple things about Corinth for you. First of all, Corinth was 10 times the population of Athens. Uh, Corinth, Corinth at that point in time had 200,000 Roman citizens, and most people believed close to four to 500,000 slaves uh, within that city. So it's quite a large city, but that's not the most significant thing. Corinth was a very sinful and immoral city as well. They had a reputation for loose living, especially for sexual sexual. immorality. In classic Greek, if someone were to say you were acting like a Corinthian, it was meaning that you were practicing fornication. And if someone called you a Corinthian companion, they were speaking of you as a prostitute. Uh, And so Corinth was associated with that sexual immorality. And one of the big reasons why was because in Corinth, they worshiped Epaphrodite, the goddess of sexuality, and they had a huge temple to her, and here are the ruins in Corinth today of this temple uh, that they worshipped, and the sad reality of this temple was that there were a thousand prostitutes there in that temple, and each night they would come out and solicit, you know, men uh, in worship of Epaphrodites, and here's an artist rendition of what Corinth would have looked like back then. As you can see, the temple would have been right there in the heart of the city, and so This immorality was definitely rampant in Corinth. And, you know, today people might have said what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. But uh, this city was definitely rough. Uh, One um, ancient writer says none but the tough could survive in Corinth, And so this is by far the most difficult place that Paul has ministered to, the most tough, the most uh, sinful. And I want you to keep that in mind because he's been in some pretty hard places, some pretty difficult cities. But Corinth is by far the, the biggest of all in that regard. And I want you to note that because of what happens as we see here in chapter 18 to Paul. And so we're told that Paul, he gets to Corinth and he meets this couple, this Jewish couple, Aquila and Priscilla from Italy. And they have one thing in common besides the fact that they're both Jewish. They're also tent makers. That was Paul's trade. And so since they were all tent makers, they decided, hey, let's just come together. We'll make tents together. We'll work together. Uh, and so, you know, they uh, spent that time together uh, in Corinth. And, um, you know, this was an important part of Paul's ministry because as he writes to the Corinthians in 1st Corinthians, one of the things he lets them know is, you know what, guys, I didn't have to take money from you. Uh, I could because, you know, I'm serving you in the capacity of the gospel and ministering the word. So I could have received money from you, but I didn't because I worked my own job. I made tents, uh, and I enabled myself to support myself. And so he kind of uses that as like, Hey, I'm not here for your money. And we see oftentimes Paul supported himself because he didn't want people to believe I'm sharing the gospel or I'm preaching the word of God for the sake of gaining financial uh, things. He's like, hey, I'll take care of myself and give this to you for free. And so he's there. He's making tents with Aquila and Priscilla, paying his bills, but he's also doing ministry as he always does. But let's see how his ministry went here uh, in Corinth, starting in verse 4, says this. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justus, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized." So Paul comes into Corinth and he does what he normally does when he has a a synagogue within a city, which there was there in Corinth. He goes to the synagogue. He starts proclaiming the gospel. He starts preaching the word of God. But the Jews in that synagogue did not respond well. We're told they opposed him and blasphemed. Speaking of the fact that they were speaking blasphemous things about Jesus, the one that Paul was preaching to them. And Paul responds by doing two things. First, he does an action. He shakes the garments in front of them. And then he says, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now this action that Paul does is significant because when Jews would go through a Gentile city and they'd get to the end of that city they would then shake the dust off of their garments and off their shoes and it was a gesture to basically one rebuke the unbelieving Gentile city and also say you know what we're not going to take any of this city with us as we go back to where we're living and so in Paul doing this to these Jews it was a symbolic thing something that they were very understanding of and saying basically it's a rebuke to you guys for not believing in Jesus. Uh, And so he does this and then he says something to them that also would have caused them to probably not be too pleased. He says, your blood be upon your own heads. You see, Paul has shared with them the gospel truth, the one way that they can be saved, the one way they can escape the judgment of God. The blood of Jesus Christ has made it possible and they're rejecting that. And so Paul is saying, hey, your blood be on your head. You've chosen to reject the way of salvation, so now you're choosing judgment, and that's on you. But he goes on to say, but I'm clean. I've done what I've been called to do. I share it. I proclaim the gospel to you, so I'm right in the fact that I communicated that, but you guys are rejecting it, so your blood be on your own head. And since you Jews, who I've come to first, have rejected the gospel... Now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. I'm going to share with them the gospel and see if they will be receptive and open. And so Paul leaves the synagogue. He goes right next door to a man named Justice's house. And we're told this is a man who worshiped God. But now notice what happens in verse 8 because this is an important turning point. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized." Now, I want you to understand what's going on here. The synagogue is full of Jews who've rejected the gospel. But look at the one guy who accepts it. The leader of them all. You know, basically the pastor of that synagogue, he's the one who accepts the gospel, and that would have infuriated these Jews. Well, wait a second. You know, of all people, we don't want Crispus doing that. Crispus, his whole household, and then many of these Gentiles living there, they come and accept Jesus Christ. Well, and the fact that this took place, it brings some animosity from the Jews towards Paul. And notice what we're told in verses 9 and 10, pretty much the most significant verses in our chapter this morning. It says this, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no evil and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. God comes to Paul in a vision by night, and he shares with Paul three very important things. The first thing that Paul that God tells Paul is, do not be afraid. Now, I want you to notice something. You don't tell someone, don't be afraid, unless they are afraid. So, obviously, Paul is fearful here. Well, what is it that the great apostle Paul is fearful about? Notice the next thing that God says to him, speak and do not keep silent. Well, once again, you don't tell someone to speak and don't keep silent unless they were thinking, you know what, I'm not going to speak and I'm going to be silent. So God's challenged him, don't do that. Well, why is it that Paul would be fearful to speak the gospel, the word of God? Well, notice the next thing. God tells him something very important. I am with you and no one will attack you or hurt you. Once again, God God wouldn't say this to Paul unless Paul had a fear that he was going to be attacked and he was going to be hurt. And the reality is Paul had good reason to fear this. As we've looked at these missionary journeys, this is kind of a typical thing that Paul goes through. He shares the gospel. Jewish people don't like what he has to say. They reject it. They get this mob together and they come after him. We've seen this over and over. Sometimes Paul has found out about it and has escaped without getting beaten or imprisoned. Other times he hasn't. We saw him stoned. Literally they thought to death and they dragged him outside of the city. Recently we saw him beaten and then imprisoned. And so Paul has experienced what the wrath of these Jews can be when they don't like the message that he proclaims. And so he's fearful of what might transpire. Well, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, has gotten saved. He realizes, man, things could get really bad for me here because of this. And he's expecting this group to come and hurt him, expecting them possibly to imprison and even try to kill him. And so God comes to Paul and says, don't be afraid. Don't keep silent because no one is going to attack and hurt you. The great apostle Paul was struggling with fear And worry, fear and worry that he was gonna be attacked, fear and worry that he was gonna be hurt. You know, I think any of us who went through what Paul went through would respond the same way. If in cities prior to this one we shared the same message and the response was beating and imprisonment, you know, and now we see they're not so happy with what I just said, and now the leader of the synagogue has just accepted the Lord and they're not responding well. I I can see all of us in that place, I know myself you know, responding with fear. What's going to happen? Worry, you know, what's going to take place? What are they going to do to me? Is it going to be as bad as it was in Lystra? Is it going to be bad as it was in this city or that city? So he was worrying. He was fearful concerning the troubles that might come. But I want you to note something very important. Paul was worrying and fearful about troubles he wasn't yet facing. Notice that he wasn't arrested. Notice that he wasn't condemned to prison. Notice he wasn't condemned to a beating. He was just worrying about something that might transpire, but hasn't happened yet. And, and I wanted to note that because I think this is something that so often we struggle with as well. I know I struggle with this. Warren Wiersbe describes it as borrowing trouble. We're basically, you know, worrying and fearful about the what ifs. Well, well, what if this happens? And what if this doesn't go through? And what if, you know, this thing goes wrong? And most of the time we're doing this, we're worrying about things that we have no control over to begin with anyway. You know, I did a lot of this my first few years. I was in Scotland when it came to my financial support. You know, I was there on a missionary visa. I was not allowed to work any job within the country. All my support had to be from churches in America. And so I had no capacity, even if I wanted to, to earn money to support myself. So I was completely dependent on support. And there were many times where I just kind of asked this question of, what if the Lord doesn't provide for me this month? And it wouldn't stop there, because then I would start thinking of all the consequences that would come if I didn't get that money. I wouldn't be able to pay my bills. I wouldn't be able to eat. I wouldn't have a place to stay. You know, I'd have to leave this country. I'd have to leave this ministry. And it would just go on and on of all the consequences that would come to this situation that wasn't even happening yet, because it was just this, you know, hypothetical what if in my mind. And you know, With that example, God had always provided for me every month, never let me down. I had no reason to think this was going to happen, and he always did take care of me. Now, I'm sure you can think of areas of your life and situations where you've been in where you've been fearful of things that haven't yet happened. You've been worried about things that aren't actually taking place yet in your life. And possibly that caused you to start thinking of, all the consequences that might come if you encounter that circumstance or if that thing actually happens in your life. Perhaps fear and worry over job security. You know, what's going to happen if I lose this job? You know, what's going to happen to my family? How am I going to pay my bills? You know, what about you know, this thing and that thing? And we start thinking of all the consequences that might come if I might lose my job when my job right now is perfectly secure. Fearful and worrying about a certain relationship. What would happen if this person reject me? What would happen if this person left me? What would happen if this person died? How would I be able to cope with that? How would I be able to cope without having them in my life? Fear and worrying about difficult situations you're in. You know, what if this thing gets worse? What if it never ends? What if I'm dealing with this a year from now? Fear and worrying about an illness or a possible illness. What if I'm like this forever? What if that test comes back positive? What if this happens or that happens? And there's all these thoughts and fears. Or biblically, just fear and worry over sharing the gospel, standing up for biblical truth. You know, what if people ridicule me? What if people are against me? What if people persecute me? There are a lot of fears and worries that we have concerning situations that we're not yet facing and may never face. Fears and worries over circumstances that we don't have any control over to begin with. Let me just say this, and I say this to myself as well. This kind of fear and worry is a horrible habit to get into. It is something that brings nothing but negative things into your life. You know, Jesus challenges us not to worry in Matthew chapter 6. And he ends by saying something that is quite interesting to me. He's been going on and on about the reason why you shouldn't worry. But he ends with, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. Why? For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus is bringing up a reality. You've got enough to worry about now. Why are you adding things that aren't even here yet? Why are you thinking and worrying about things that might happen in the future? Just deal with what you have to deal with today. You know, because today we have so much on our plate, so much that's going on. We don't need to add more worry about what might transpire in the future that we don't know if it's going to happen or not. And then sadly, you know, we add so much fear and worry to us when the reality is we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We don't know if this stuff's going to happen. Just, let's just deal with what we actually have to deal with, what's happening today, and trust the Lord to help us in it. So don't get caught up in the what ifs, this trouble comes, or what if this situation happens, we have enough real trouble to deal with, we don't need to add other things into our life. You know, I don't know about you, but when I look at Paul's life, I'm, I'm prone to think of him as this kind of super Christian who always dealt with things properly. And man, just well, look at him. He's just always doing it right. You don't often think of Paul as a guy struggling with fear, struggling with worry. But you know what? He was a real guy, just like you and I. He, he had sins. He had emotions. He had issues, just like we do. He had weaknesses. He had fears. He had worries. And here he's in this place where he's struggling, just like we do. And he needed encouragement from God, just like we do. Specific encouragement with these fears and these worries that he's dealing with. And I want you to notice, when Paul's in this place of fear and worry, God doesn't come and rebuke him. God doesn't say to Paul, what's wrong with you? Why are you worrying? Why are you fearful? Come on, what, what, what are you doing? God doesn't approach Paul like that. He comes to him with words of encouragement. He understands where Paul's coming from. He understands what's going on with Paul. He understands why he's fearful. He understands why he's worrying, and he comes to encourage him in three ways to help him get past these things, to help him get through this. And I want us to take note of what God says to Paul because these are three truths that God encourages all of us with that will really help us with the fears and the worries that we have. So God comes to Paul in a vision by night, And as we already noted, God tells him, don't be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. And then notice in verse 10, God shares three reasons why Paul can overcome his fears and worries. Three reasons why he can keep ministering for the Lord. The first reason God gives to Paul to help him overcome his fears and worries, he says, I am with you. You know, one of the cures to Paul's fears, one of the cures to Paul's worries and to ours as well is a recognition that God is with us in the midst of whatever we're going to encounter and the things that life throws our way. This should be a great comfort to know God is with us. You know, in times of fear and worry, it's easy to feel all alone. It's easy to feel like no one's there with us, but we need to remember the truth that that's not the case. We might not have people around us helping us, but God never leaves us or forsakes us. God is always with us no matter what we're going through. You know, there's a poem that became popular called Footprints. I'm sure some of you have read it. And, you know, I like the the ending of it and the premise of it. And I think it fits well with, you know, this point that I'm making here. I'm going to read it to you uh, and uh, hopefully it will be an encouragement. It says this, One night a man had a dream. He dreamed he was walking along the beach with the Lord. Across the sky flashed scenes from his life. For each scene he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to him and the other to the Lord. When the last scene of his life flashed before him, he looked back at the footprints in the sand. He noticed that many times along the path of his life, there was only one set of footprints. He also noticed that it happened at the very lowest and saddest times in his life. This really bothered him, and he questioned the Lord about it. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I've noticed that during the most troublesome times in my life, there's only one set of footprints. I don't understand why, when I needed you the most, you would leave me. The Lord replied, my precious, precious child, I love you and I would never leave you. During your times of trial and suffering, when you only see one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. We need to have a confidence that God is with us in the midst of difficulty and troubles because It's in those times, and I I relate to this poem because there's times where you're in the midst of such hardship and you think, I'm all alone. You know, if God was really with me, I wouldn't be going through this or whatever. And, And we get to that place where we fall into this deception that no one's here with me when the truth is that's not the case. God is. He's always with us. God meets our fears and worries with the reality of his presence. You know, there are many scriptures that reveal to us we shouldn't fear because God is with us. And I want to read a couple to you just to encourage you with what they say. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says this. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we may boldly say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Romans eight thirty one: If God be for us, who can be against us? Isaiah 41, 10 Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Psalm 23, 4. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You know, God wants us to know that we don't need to fear. Why? Because he's with us and I love the truths that these verses bring to us that the all-powerful all-knowing creator of heaven and earth who loves us deeply is always with us in the midst of what we go through in the midst of our trials in the midst of our hardships we can hold to these truths and be confident even though I'm walking in the valley of the shadow of death I don't need to fear why God is with me and since God is with me Who can be against me? And since God is with me, we can boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? These are wonderful truths that the Bible reveals that we need to hold on to. So the first encouragement we see for those who are fearful and worrying is God's presence. God is always present with you to help you with whatever you're going through. So don't worry Don't fear. You know, if you're struggling with a situation right now that is causing you to fear and worry, let the words of God comfort you. He's with you. He's there with you. Whatever it is you're going through, he is in the midst of it with you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to abandon you. The one who has all power, the one who knows all, he's there with you to help you and give you what you need to get through it. So rely on his strength. Trust in him. And don't fear. Don't worry. Just put your faith in Jesus Christ. So the first reason that God gives to Paul to help him overcome his fears and worries is, Paul, I'm with you. The second reason that God gives to Paul to help him overcome his fear and worry in verse 10 is no one would attack Paul to hurt him. Notice the Lord gives Paul a promise. Paul, I promise you you're not going to be attacked and I promise you you're not going to be hurt while you're in the city of Corinth. Now, this was the perfect promise for Paul to hear and take hold of because the situation was, man, I am fearful and worried because I, I believe that they're coming against me. I believe I'm going to be attacked. I believe I'm going to be hurt, just like I have been so often in cities past. And the fact that God promises that Paul would not be hurt is a wonderful truth. But you know what? Paul needed to believe and act upon that promise for it to be of any benefit to him. Just the fact that Paul says, you know, or God says to Paul, hey, I have a promise for you. You're not going to be attacked and you're not going to be hurt. That's a wonderful promise, especially in the circumstances that Paul found himself in, but it would do him no good. It would just be words if he didn't actually believe it and act upon it. You know, I was watching a TV show recently and this girl fell down this cliff and she's barely holding on to, you know, the rock face. And, you know, they go and they get these rescue workers and they lower them down. And this, you know, rescue worker comes and he comes up next to her and he puts his arm around her. And he says, you know, you need to let go so I can hold on to you and, and we can pull you back to the top. And, you know, she's fearful of doing it. And he, he says, you know, I promise I will hold on to you. I promise you'll be OK. And she doesn't believe him. And she's just holding on there for, you know, much more time and she's starting to slip. And a few more times he says to her, I promise you, let go. I will catch you. I will hold on to you. We will be safe. And it wasn't until she finally believed and then acted upon by letting go and grabbing a hold of this rescue worker that that promise did her any good. God promised Paul Hey, no one's going to come attack you. No one's going to hurt you. But Paul had to believe it. Paul had to act upon it for it to be something that impacted him in the way that God desired it to. And I want you to realize that the Bible is full of God's promises to us. But you know what? Those promises aren't going to benefit us unless we believe them, unless we act upon them. You know, there's two things I want you to note concerning The promises of God the first thing I want you to note are the kind of promises we've been given second Peter 1 4 says God has given us exceedingly great and precious promises I want you to think about this the Bible is full of promises but they're full of exceedingly great and precious promises from God to us God didn't give us some insignificant promise that we shouldn't care about. He's given us exceedingly great and precious promises that we should believe and that we should act upon. The second thing I want you to note is the confidence that you and I can have if we, that we will receive these exceedingly great and precious promises. 1 Kings 8.56 says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all he promised There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You know, something we need to understand about God, it's very different than a lot of people. And maybe you've had people in your life, maybe even people close to you, maybe even spouses or parents or friends who promise you something and they don't come through. Oh, I promise I'll be at your game, you know, son, and and then it doesn't happen. Or or I'll promise this. Or I, I promise to, you know, always be faithful to you as a spouse, and that doesn't happen. Or whatever it is, you get a promise, and they don't fulfill it. And you start to think, you know what? I don't buy into promises anymore. I've had too many promises broken on me, and I just don't believe them. And sometimes we take those feelings towards God because we've had so many people break promises to us that we don't believe that God is a promise keeper. Because people oftentimes aren't promise keepers, but we need to understand something about God. He doesn't break promises ever. He's always faithful to do what he promises to do. And we need to hold on to that truth. So the first thing to note about God's promises are the kind of promises he gives, they're exceedingly great and they're precious. They're valuable. They're worthwhile. We should want them. We should believe in them. We should act upon them. And the second thing to note is that we can have confidence that God who promises things to us will always be faithful to fulfill it. This should encourage you I know it encourages me when I think of the promises of God that one the kind that he gives and two that he is always a promise keeper he will faithfully give what he promises to give which brings us to the second encouragement we see for those who are fearful and worrying and that is God's promises believe and act upon all the promises that God has given you which will help you not to fear or worry So the first reason God gives to Paul for why he shouldn't fear is, Paul, I'm with you. The second reason is, Paul, I give you a promise. No one's going to hurt you. No one's going to attack you. And now we come to the third thing that that God shares with Paul to encourage him to overcome his fears and worries. There in verse 10, we're told God has many people in the city of Corinth. And most commentators believe the idea behind this statement that God has many people in the city of Corinth is that there are many people that God has prepared that are ready to receive the gospel message. And I want you to think from Paul's perspective here, he just came out of Athens. And as we noted, Athens was not a very good place from the standpoint of fruitful ministry. Not very many people received the gospel. He just left there and now he's in Corinth. And you think in Corinth is ten times worse than Athens, and it's just so, you know, sinful and, and sexually promiscuous and all this, you know, things going on. And I'm sure as as often we would probably think Pfft, How is a church ever going to thrive here? You know, how are people ever going to really come to know Jesus here? And probably thought, you know what? Not much is going to happen in this wicked city. But the Lord shares with Paul this wonderful truth of, Paul, I got many people in the city of Corinth. And this is something that I think is so important because God shares his perspective with Paul on this city in order to help Paul have the right perspective. God had many people in the city of Corinth, many people ready to hear the gospel and receive it. God wanted to do a great work there, and he needed Paul to be in line with that perspective, because maybe outwardly it looks like these people aren't ready for anything except a sinful life. And, you know, Maybe we go to places like Vegas or you know, even here in Houston, and we look around and we think, man, there's just such a huge need, but yet these people aren't willing to accept and to receive but you know what? Jesus is the Lord of the harvest and he knows when the fields are ripe and ready for reaping. I think oftentimes our natural response is to look at our circumstances from our own perspective But we really need to pray and ask God to help us see his perspective. Because, you know, our perspective is oftentimes poor and wrong and unbiblical. And we get so consumed with the circumstances and the situations and the difficulty that we're fearing and worrying that we need to step back and say, Lord, I need to not see this just from my perspective. I need your perspective. I need to see from your eyes. And you need to help me to look at this situation from the way in which you see it. And once we do that, it changes our perspective, and oftentimes that change of perspective really helps with those feelings of fear, those feelings of worry, and we're recognizing something very different because God sees things differently than we do. You know, God's perspective is always the right perspective and the one that we need to have, especially if we want to overcome our fears and our worries. And so the third encouragement we see for those who are worrying and fearful is God's perspective. Ask God to give you his perspective in the situations where you're fearful, where you're worrying. And there's two great ways to receive it. The first is through prayer. Just ask him, Lord, I want your perspective. I need your perspective. Please give it to me. I'm just i just going to seek you in this and, and ask that you would reveal that. But one of the ways that God reveals it the most is through his word. So pray and read his word. You know, the Bible is full of God's perspective on all sorts of different circumstances and relationships and situations, and he reveals it. He's not trying to hide it. And so, you know, you say, Lord, I want your perspective. Well, look in my word. I've shown it to you, and he'll guide us to those things and help us to understand his perspective on these circumstances and these situations that we often struggle with and have fear over. So God gives Paul three encouragements to help Paul not to fear. God's presence, Paul, I'm always going to be with you. God's promise, Paul, no one's going to attack you, no one's going to hurt you. And God's perspective. There are many people, Paul, still in Corinth who need to hear the gospel. Well, now in verse 11, we see the result of these three encouragements to Paul. What does it say? And Paul continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. I want you to note something here. Paul went from fearing, from worrying, from saying, you know what, I'm going to keep silent. I'm not going to proclaim the gospel. I'm not going to teach anymore. I'm just going to leave. He goes from that to staying in Corinth, preaching and teaching for a year and a half. And I want you to know this is the longest that Paul has stayed anywhere so far in these missionary journeys that he's been on. He's therefore quite a long stretch of time. And the reason that he is able to stay, the reason he's able to overcome his fear, overcome his worry, and, and continue in this wicked city is because of these three things that God has just revealed. Paul, I'm with you. I promise you, no one's going to attack or hurt you. My perspective that you need to see there's a lot of people who need the gospel here, a lot of people who need my word taught, and I have you here for a reason because I want you to reach those people. And the result is that Paul is able to continue to minister in Corinth without fear, without worry. You know, if you're in a situation right now that you are fearful about, that you're worrying about, let these three things encourage you. God's presence is with you. God's promises are there for you to take hold of, and God's perspective is something that he wants you to understand and something that he wants you to grab hold of. If you do that, if you hold on to these three things, I guarantee you, it will definitely help you to overcome those fears, to overcome those worries that you face. Well, now we're going to see an actual example of God being faithful to the promise because he tells Paul, hey, you're not going to get attacked. You're not going to get hurt. Every other city it happens, Lord. Well, let's see what happens in this city and how God is faithful to fulfill the promise that he gave. Verse 12, when Galeo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up and against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge in such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. So the Jews, they, they, they bring Paul to the leader there, Galileo, and they throw out this accusation of he's teaching things contrary to the law. And God shows his faithfulness. This guy says, you know what, if this was a real you know, crime, then I would do something. But just because he has a different opinion to your law, tough. Deal with it yourself. Uh, and so they're still angry. So they take the now, remember, uh, They had Crispus, who was the the leader of the synagogue, get saved. So now they have appointed another leader of the synagogue. And for some reason, they beat that guy. Uh, But, you know, they're just angry and they want to beat someone. They can't beat Paul, so they beat him. But God protects Paul here and nothing happens, you know, from a group that definitely obviously wanted to cause physical harm. But the Lord watches over him. Now in verses 18 through 22, we see the last few places that Paul goes here at the finishing up this second missionary journey, starting in verse 23. We'll start next week at the third missionary journey. Let's see how this concludes. Verse 18 says this, So Paul still remained a good while, then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. So Paul left Corinth, and he sails to uh, Syria, and notice he takes Priscilla and Aquila, you know, the Jewish people who are followers of Christ now, uh, his fellow tent makers, they're with him to serve alongside of him, uh, and he comes to uh, uh, Centria, and we're told that he had his hair cut off Uh uh because of a vow. Now, most likely, the only vow we have in scripture that deals with hair is the vow of the Nazirite. Uh, And, you know, the most famous Nazirite is Samson, and he didn't do a very good job of keeping his Nazirite vow. But uh, the main things the Nazirite had to do is, one, they wouldn't let their hair be cut. Two, they wouldn't have anything from the grapevine. So no wine, nothing like that. And they weren't allowed to touch any dead bodies. Those are the three main things. And the purpose of this vow, you're like, well, what's the point? Well, it was a vow to ultimately separate yourself unto the Lord. You know, as a separation, this dedication to God. And so Paul is taking this vow, most likely this vow of the Nazarites. And I think it's significant when Paul does this, because he does this in one of the most wicked cities that he's ever been in. And we're not given the reason why, but, you know, obviously he's there in this wicked city and he wants to make this, you know, vow of complete separation unto the Lord in the midst of a lot of pagan, you know, sinfulness that's around him. And I think it's a great encouragement and challenge. Uh, for us as well because we live in a wicked world and we are in desperate need to make a choice to say Lord I'm going to separate myself unto you a passage of scripture I love Romans 12:2. it says do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God You know, the reality is, we all know it, this world can have a very sinful negative impact on us and we need to make a choice to say, Lord, I'm going to separate myself to you. I'm going to devote time to you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to make you a priority in my life. I'm going to spend time with you. That's a choice that you and I have to make. It doesn't just happen. It's something that we ourselves say, Lord, you are important to me and I recognize the impact this world is having and I want to be separate unto you. Well, after making this Nazarite vow, we see that Paul travels to Ephesus. Uh, And I want you to note something that's significant. If you remember back in chapter 16, you know, this start of this second missionary journey, they try to go to Ephesus. And the Holy Spirit says, "Uh uh-uh, no. And they're upset. You know, wait a second. We just want to go minister the gospel to these people. Why can't we go? And the Holy Spirit had another place for them to go. But now notice they're allowed. And this is something I want you to realize. You know, if Paul would have had the, the understanding of God, he would have realized the Holy Spirit wasn't saying no. The Holy Spirit was saying wait. You know, there's a perfect timing for you to get to Ephesus. It's not now, Paul. I know you have a heart to go there, but I got some other places for you to go first. But you're going to get here. You're going to get your opportunity. You're going to get to minister to these people. And I think it's just important for us to realize that, you know what? God's timing is always perfect. And oftentimes we get ahead of God and it's like, Lord, it's got to be right now. And God says, no it doesn't. Wait. I have a plan, and it's going to be so great when it happens, and it's going to work out so much better, but you just need to trust me. You just need to wait on me. You just need to believe that I know best, and sometimes that can be hard for us to do, but he's there in Ephesus, and they say, you know what? Can you stay with us? Hey, wonderful. Most people want to get rid of me. You guys want to keep me, but... He tells him, no, I can't stay. He's going to come back. We're going to see that in the next missionary journey. But he doesn't say, why? I need to get to Jerusalem because I want to fulfill this vow. He made this Nazarite vow. He's growing out his hair. He wants to cut his hair and sacrifice it to the Lord as a, a vow to him of this separation unto God. And he's like, you know what? I want to fulfill this. I made a commitment to this and I need to go to Jerusalem and I want to fill, uh, follow up with what I've done. And so I can't stay with you guys because this is important for me to complete this vow that I made to the Lord. And it ends here in verse 22 telling us this. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, Speaking of the church in Jerusalem, he went down to Antioch. So Paul leaves Ephesus, and he goes to Caesarea, and then he goes to Jerusalem. He offers his Nazarite vow there at the temple, and then he goes back to his home church in Antioch, and I'm sure he gets to share with them the amazing things, once again, that God has done in the second missionary journey, just like he got to share what God did in the first missionary journey. But, you know, we can highlight the great things that God did, but also recognize there was a lot of hardship. There was a lot of difficulty. There was a lot of suffering, and Paul got to a place of fear. He got to a place of worry. But the Lord enabled Paul to get through that, through these three great encouragements that I want us to So just think about, as we close this morning, remembering the three things that God shares with Paul. First, God's presence. God is always with you to help you with whatever you're going through. So don't fear. Don't worry. Second, God's promises. Believe and act upon all the promises God has given you, which will help you to not fear or worry. And three, God's perspective. Ask God to give you his perspective on the situation that you're in and it'll help you not to fear or worry. You know, I think another great thing for you to do if you're fearful or worried about something is to get prayer. I'm going to have the worship team come up right now and uh, myself and our elders, Lee and Ray, we're just going to be in the back uh, and, you know, as the worship team plays, if you need prayer for anything, you know, it could be you're fearful about something, you know, there's something going on that's difficult, you won't pray for that, you could be sick, whatever it is, you want prayer, uh, we're going to be back there to pray for you. If you just want to worship while we're worshiping, then worship. Uh, it's just a, a time for you to either get prayer or just worship the Lord and focus on Him, but we're just going to, we're going to close uh, with that and so uh, after that I'll come up and, and I'll finish this up in prayer. But uh, so if you have a heart to uh, come and get prayer, then we're there for you. So I'm going to go ahead and worship the Lord.